Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everybody. Welcome. My name is Lauren Silver, and I am the Vice President of Education at the Commonwealth Club of California. And I am very happy to welcome you all here tonight. This is our fall 2023 program in our Creating Citizens Speaker Series at UC Berkeley, which is a collaboration with the ASUC Vote Coalition and was launched together in 2022. So yes, Creating Citizens is the Commonwealth Club World Affairs Civics Education Initiative, building on foundational values of civility, mutual respect across divides, and informed civic action Creating Citizens engages youth and adults in meaningful civil dialogue about contemporary issues so that we can all be active, informed participants in our democracy. We are grateful to the Correct Foundation for their generous support of Creating Citizens and for their dedication to improving the quality of civics education in California and beyond. And now I'm very happy to introduce to you Ava Escobedo. Ava is a second year student studying history with a minor in global studies. She's passionate about the political relevance of history and hopes that by understanding history from new perspectives, young people will be more civically engaged and better equipped members of our society. During her freshman year, Ava worked as an intern for the ASUC Vote Coalition, and she was able to see the execution of previous Creating Citizens speaker programs and to take part in the amazing dialogue that was created through these conversations. She now serves as the Deputy Director of Programs for VoteCo, where she gets the opportunity to plan events like this one. It has been my privilege to work with Ava on today's program, so please join me in welcoming Ava who will introduce our moderator. Thank you, Lauren, and thank you to the Creating Citizens Club, Creating Citizens and Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California for your partnership on today's program. Um, So my name is Ava Escobedo, and as mentioned, I am the Deputy Director of Programs for the ASUC Vote Coalition. We are so deeply grateful to the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California for their endless support on this program and their dedication to uplifting youth voices and civic engagement. This program began as a late night idea by our current EAVP, Alex Edgar, and I'm so honored to be able to carry out this speaker series and to have planned the fourth installment of this event. Our moderator today is Valeria Spino. Valeria is a first generation third year student at UC Berkeley, double majoring in society environment and environmental economics and policy. Her academic niche falls at the intersection of environmental public health and law She is especially intrigued by topics such as data analysis, sustainable design, public policy, immigration, and global production systems. Currently, Valeria is a research fellow for Latinx in the Environment and serves as the Environmental Justice and Climate Change Policy Lead in the Office of the External Affairs Vice President. Valeria also involves herself with the Students of Color Environmental Collective, which aims to hold space for environmentalists of color. So at this time, I'd love to welcome Valeria and the rest of our speakers to the stage. Thank you all for coming. Um, Thank you to the panelists and Lauren and Ava for planning this event. Um, I hope you all are excited about learning about the environmentalist movement and civic engagement. 
I'd like to introduce our panelists for the evening. Um, to begin, we have Abigail Dillon, Abby. She is the president of Earth Justice, which represents more than 500 clients free of charge, harnessing the power of law to force climate solutions while protecting healthy communities and ecosystems. Sharam Dalafondet is a proud first-generation college graduate and daughter of Lao refugees. She is an aspiring pleasure activist and an environmental educator who centers her work and vision with values of love and joy. Sharon has served as the director of the Student Environmental Resource Center at UC Berkeley since 2017. Prior to this position, Sharon worked as a TGIF and Sustainability Initiatives Coordinator and as a Sustainability Strategist at the San Francisco State University. From 2014 to 2021, she was a board member for the Food Empowerment Project, a vegan food justice organization where she helped launch Vegan Lao Food. Sharon holds a BA in Environmental Studies from San Francisco State University and is a certified Zero Waste Community Associate and holds a certificate in fundraising and volunteer management from UC Berkeley Extension. Dan Common is a James and Lauren Loud Distinguished Professor of Sustainability with a parallel appointments in the Energy and Resources Group, the Goldman School of Public Policy, and, is, and the Department of Nuclear Energy. His work is focused on decarbonization, energy access, and climate justice. He has served as a senior advisor for the energy and innovation at the U.S. Agency for International Development, is a coordinating lead author for the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and is a co-chair for the UC Berkeley Roundtable on Climate Change and Environmental Justice. In 2010, Common was appointed as the first environmental and climate partnership for the American Fellows by the Secretary of State, Hillary Rodman Clinton. Clinton, I'm sorry. And he has served as the science envoy for the Secretary of State of State John Kerry in 2016 to 2017. Ashri Ashi Mishra is a senior at UC Berkeley majoring in conservation and research studies. She has spent her undergraduate degree working to decarbonize UC Berkeley's energy system, first as an activist and now as a clean energy campus fellow in the UC Berkeley Office of Sustainability. Ashi serves as a Berkeley student government environmental representative, better known as the Eco Senator. Please help me welcome our panelists for today. <clears throat> okay, first I just want to thank you all for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us tonight. Um, I want to ask you all now the first question. How have each of your backgrounds shaped your desire to be advocates for the environment and how did you become involved in doing work that you were doing? If anyone wants to begin. Sure. <laughs> Happy to start. Um, I don't, I would not be where I'm at today if it wasn't for finding activism and organizing in my life. I remember being in high school, dealing with all sorts of high school things and almost on the verge of actually being a high school dropout, having a really bad counselor tell me I was not going to amount to anything. And I, you know, actually graduated from a continuation high school, really honored to be have had that opportunity and that ounce of hope and really found that through when I first went veganism or went vegan and saw exploitation of things that I was trying to make sense of. That led me to the path of knowing that I wanted to pursue something, that I wanted to get involved in something much more, that there was a future for me to do something um, I luckily was able to find some mentors who helped me understand veganism as an intersectional 
um, as an intersectional movement. And that helped me kind of see the connections between environmental issues, between, between farm worker justice, between, you know, health and envir other environmental um, racism things that come up within the animal agriculture industry and felt like the environment was another calling that I really wanted to pursue. Um, that was also around the time of uh, the significant BP, BP oil spills. And I felt really called to what was happening on the, the Gulf Coast. And so when I was in community college, I was applying to different schools and found that San Francisco State had environmental studies program that I really wanted to pursue. And then um, when I got to environment, when I got to SF State as a transfer student, I stuck around for three years because I got heavily involved in environmental activism on campus, really found um, different issues that I was really excited to work on issues such as um, trying to divest fossil fuels from our campus. We and all my friends were the ones to help divest fossil fuels from San Francisco State, and we were the first public university to do so. Um, and I also pursued other campaigns like trying to invest in um, financial security for sustainability projects through create, wanting to create a green fund, similar to what UC Berkeley had has here. Um, we never got to pass it, but I found my way to UC Berkeley being so inspired by the work that student activists were doing here and got to pursue a full-time job getting to oversee the program that I was so in love with as a student activist. And so getting to work day-to-day -day with students who share similar values, who really see a future um, of climate justice, see a future of climate justice also meaning pro-affordable housing, LGBTQ um, rights, and having very intersectional approaches to where they see climate justice is so motivating. And I feel like I owe everything to my younger self of, you know, pursuing activism organizing to get to where I'm at now. And every day I feel really privileged and honored and inspired by the students I get to work at every day um, to know that we're together co-creating a more just future. No, that's really interesting how you brought that up. Dan? So I trained in school as a physicist, and I didn't have the language about environmentalism when I was an undergraduate. I went to grad school and was in, in physics and astrophysics because I planned to be an astronaut until I failed the vision test at Houston. Um, but I read an advertisement in, in a magazine about a Berkeley-based nonprofit group that sent technical people, te sent engineers to Nicaragua to work for the Marxist, the Sandinista government when the U.S. was, was um, embargoing the country. So I worked a couple years for this group, Technica, for the Nicaraguan government. And during that time, I transitioned from being a grad student to a postdoc down at Caltech and accidentally found this whole area of kind of energy. And we didn't have the justice language um, either then. But now at Berkeley, with amazing students and colleagues, I get to co-chair this roundtable on environmental justice. And then the last thing that kind of keeps the kind of refreshed is that I go back and forth in and out of federal service. So I've served in the Obama administration until I resigned when there was an election. Um, and um, just came out of the Biden administration and have gotten to work with amazing colleagues overseas. I work mainly in East Africa and Southeast Asia today, um, but that back and forth allows us to keep our research projects exciting, but also to find a way to keep making sure that things we do have at least some level of impact. And I guess a bad fact is that I've now been to 19 of these COP meetings um, and you would hope that we wouldn't need 19 meetings to transition to clean energy, but we seem to be going strong on meetings, not going so strong on action. 
Yeah. So I do not have backgrounds that look like this just yet. Um, maybe one day. But I kind of came into UC Berkeley as an economics student. That's one of my favorite stories to tell. So if you know it already, there's that. I came in an econ student. I didn't really like science in high school. I was very determined not to pursue anything science related. And I took a climate science class here to fulfill a UC Berkeley requirement and then kind of just fell into it, which I think corresponds to a lot of people's stories. When I look back, though, it's kind of unsurprising that I chose to continue to work as an environmental advocate because uh, my parents are first generation immigrants and we own farmland for subsistence based agriculture. So I spent a lot of summers actually working in the fields, just picking up things as a kid, just running around, helping make sure the plants were watered and everything. But we've gotten to see over the past 30, 40 years just how you know, precipitation patterns have changed and there's been changes in terms of what what's able to grow and what's not able to grow. So having experienced that firsthand and seen how certain members of my family are struggling because of that definitely made me more interested in agriculture. And then like Sharon, I got to learn there's so many different aspects to environmentalism. So I had the opportunity to get involved with um, UC Green New Deal here and just a lot of different events led to me getting more and more involved think again a lot of people here can agree with when you get started you kind of just fall in and then you end up where you end up and very grateful to be here to talk about just environmentalism from a college student perspective and excited to start my journey Abby that's wonderful uh it's just so great to be in all of your company thank you for having all of us in this conversation and what I'm struck by, the commonalities are when you open the door into environmental advocacy of any kind, there are more and more doors. You'll, you'll never come out <laughs> because there's so much to do and there's so much to care about. I, my door was coming here to law school and had some great professors and just was excited by the idea that you could um, take smart policy to address really daunting systems problems and put it in the form of law and in a rule of law country, or at least what seemed so to me then, um, be, be able to, to really change things. And, you know, acid rain was a major issue that we were able to tackle with a smart law that Congress passed um, and people enforced and governments enforced. And so I, I spent my second summer in law school in Montana working for Earth Justice, where I still work now. And that was the moment where I realized the laws don't execute themselves. Um, a small group of people can bring the U.S. federal government to the table, can bring multinational corporations to the table. And the law is never enough by itself. You have to organize political majorities to be able to have great laws and ensure that they're enforced. But it is itself, you know, standing alone can create an important impact, but it is itself an organizing tool. It can be that lever of power that brings people together to win an important issue and and keep building a momentum to to win the next and the next. And so um, that's that's how I find myself here tonight. Thank you all. It's really interesting to see how different environments, communities have led you to this 
point in time at our speaker series. Um, now I'd like to move on to individual questions, if that's all right. The first question will be to Ashi. As a Gen Z student, what do you think Gen Z can specifically bring to the table in this fight for environmental justice? And how do you think Gen Z can impact future elections? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, I looked it up. Gen Z is 1997 to 2012. That means a lot of us are coming into voting age if we haven't already. And I think it's really going to make a big difference in elections overall, just as we come into, as you mentioned, Dan, there wasn't a lot of environmental justice language or definitions during maybe when you were in school. We have a lot more conversations about it now, at least in the communities that I'm a part of. Obviously, there is a lot of work to be done educationally from in like higher educational institutions and then building down from there into high schools and elementary schools and middle schools. But just having, I think, a big advantage that we have is the fact that we're already having these conversations at a very young age. And there's a lot of a sense of power and hope that comes from it and acknowledging that, oh, the impacts of, envi of environmental issues are disproportionate. And, you know, they impact certain communities more than they do others. And being able to recognize that, oh, I can help support this community in this way, or this is where I need to be able to divert my efforts instead of viewing it as a, oh, I have to solve the entire climate crisis or environmental crisis on my own. And I think coming in with that perspective, just as someone from Gen Z and talking to a lot of people is very inspiring. It's it helps keep me going, focusing on that local change on communities that I can help and how we can work to continue holding those conversations that hopefully do translate into action. And I think, again, voting is a very powerful tool showing up, like you said, in big majorities to support parties, to support people in power who do, you know, represent those issues and Voting seems to be like one of the easiest ways and yet one of the most powerful ways to do it. And I'm very excited to see what my generation gets to do with that. Yeah, I don't know about you all, but I'm very excited to be able to vote in next year's election. Missed it last year by one year, unfortunately. But yeah, I think it's really interesting how you bring up the climate crisis and that we're very ambitious and want to solve everything at once when instead we should take a step back and work with our local community members. I think it's really empowering what you said about that. And then the second question is going to go to Daniel. As a professor in the Goldman School of Public Policy, CNR Energy and Resources Group, and as an environmental advocate, do you and how do you encourage or influence your students to be environmentally educated and environmental activists? Ooh, well, so I'm really fortunate. Um, in fact, I moved from being a professor at Princeton to here specifically because Berkeley is such a hotbed of students who take charge and need less direction and need more support in terms of making this happen. So my primary group is actually a graduate unit, although I see several undergrads from my mixed undergrad grad class called Energy and Society that I have a lot of uh, faith in and a lot of just imp imp being impressed about what they're doing. So what I find I mainly do is look at projects that I think have enough science to keep me excited about the scientific component, but have a path to impact. And that's why going in and out of federal service or working for um, 
uh, governor here and others are sort of part of things we do. But mainly it's to open pathways for students to do those things. And I mean, I have a student who's the vice president of Pacific Gas and Electric. Another one of my students drafted a lot of the material that Presidents Biden and she talked about today with the so-called Sunnylands, not chosen randomly as a place to meet, um, the accord that they, they brought out. Um, and so finding ways to empower them is, I think, the most exciting thing. And sometimes it's connections and kind of, we used to call it a Rolodex, now I guess you call it a, whatever. but it's finding those connections that allow them to do what they say they want to do, but may not always know, do I need to learn more material science? Do I need, need to learn more environmental law? We all need to learn more environmental justice. And so finding ways to build those connections so they can go off and do these amazing things, writing laws, leading protests. My daughter, I believe, is being arrested in L.A. at a protest today over uh, uh, the, the Israeli invasion of Gaza. And so there's a number of places where you find you can support. And pretty early in one's career, you think you figure out that writing papers and neat journals is great, but your biggest impact is the people you can empower along. No, yeah, I think the phrase that you said, less direction, more support, I feel like is really interesting coming as a student myself, just because I feel like professors always teach their own visions. And I feel like that's a very, I feel like inspiring way of putting that. And I think it'd be interesting as a professor to see how your students have been, been molded and are filling these careers in the future sustainability. And then kind of shifting that um, for Sharon. What do you think are examples of barriers to sustainability within the UC Berkeley campus? And what is CERC doing to address them and to encourage young people to take part in this fight? <laughs> barriers. Um, so, so happy to be here. So inspired by all of y'all. Um, I think for those of y'all who don't know, CERC stands for the Student Environmental Resource Center. We're a campus department um, that supports students and student organizations to work on different environmental projects where majority student run. Um, I'm lucky to be one of three full-time staff, but our 30 plus students are the heart and soul of our organization that facilitate all of our different programs, events, initiatives um, that we work on. And so the barriers that I think we face are the, there's so many for institutions that, you know, a lot of institutions are built on different levels of, institutional and systemic oppressions from white supremacy to patriarchy to um, colonization. And there's, I think, you know, decades of this work that you might find yourself having to unravel or finding yourself of like, what are the different things that we're up against? And I think doing environmental work, you know, you get exposed to some of those isms and you have to figure out what are the things that I can put and invest my energy in and how can we support students along this way? Um, I think sometimes another barrier to just UC Berkeley students and in getting involved in environmental sustainability is there's a huge culture of competition and just burnout. Everyone is so busy doing so many things, having to feel that burden as well of I need to do everything to solve the climate crisis or I need to do everything to for this particular issue and this issue. But then I also have to be a student and then I have to be a senator and then I have to do this thing. And there's just so much work. And so what I love um that isn't necessarily environmental that we get to do at CERC is to just kind of try to support students in that slowing down. How can we pause? How can we reflect? How can we take care of our full selves and our whole so that or our human self so that we can be our full selves and showing up and doing this work and have fun while we can? I love my job <laughs> so much. And that's because I do try to instill the funness and the joy 
Uh, because I really believe in as we're trying to solve the climate crisis, we need to have fun along the way. We need to make friends. We need to build community. And so um, some of the things that we get to do is trying to really um, pursue that a uh, program that we launched last spring called newt nature education wellness together is really trying to get students to go outside more um, to explore nature to come together um, and specifically you know to really support marginalized students who might not have had the opportunity to go hiking um, or go camping growing up and to you know f have facilitated conversations and um, to have the camping gear ready to have our you know our amazing staff jed be able to support them on these hikes and camping and so i'm excited for you know that program and just doing you know more wellness activities uh, more conversations around things that students you know really care about environmental justice climate justice um, and really filling the niche that um, students might be getting in other places and seeing how CERT can facilitate that how we can institutionalize that how can we uplift that yeah i use CERC services all the times so i love doing their little yoga wellness shops that they have on fridays um i think it's really interesting that you bring up the supported students as we're like trying to navigate college because i know it's a lot of people's first times or the lack of knowledge and just these overall barriers. I think it's really interesting that you're trying to implement these practices at a young age rather than in the professional stage. And then moving on to that, um, for Abby, how has Earth Justice's social media presence affected your approach to environmental activism and the ways in which Earth Justice frames issues and platforms? What impact have you seen this on youth engagement, mobilization, and civic engagement? Well, can I unpack that question a little bit? Yeah, go for it. Um, when I came into the environmental movement, there was the perception, and I think it still exists, that it is um, older white people who care most about environmental protection. And that is not the case. The core of support for the most ambitious environmental action is Latine, Black, people of color. And part of the reason for that is that those are the populations in this country that have been most acutely impacted by pollution, by environmental injustice. They are living that experience and they are voting based on that experience. And so now we find ourselves at a time where young people are reshaping politics in the United States and they're doing it so profoundly and so quickly that the established parties in this country have not even yet caught up to that fact. I'm not sure why, because 2018 and 2020 showed so dispositively the impact of young voters. But you may have noticed there's a huge age gap between the leadership, political leadership in this country and Gen Z. And you have a political class that has operated their entire lifetimes with the assumption that young people will not turn out and that they will not make the difference in elections. Young people have, have proven that that is no longer the case. And you have the power to reshape how both parties think about their policy platforms and, and their obligations to you and what you care about. And so coming back to the environment, young people have lived their entire lives inside this climate crisis. And so it is not a um, ideological issue. It's not a polarized issue. It is the fact of your lives. And you know that it's only getting worse unless 
we can change our current trajectory. And so now adding to the base of people of color who are the base for, for climate action and, and climate justice, it is young voters. And so as someone at an environmental organization, you are the audience and you are the partners and you are more and more the doers. My organization is trending very young because the best and the brightest people who are coming out to do what they can do in the world are wanting to do this work to secure the future. And so just to be relevant, we have to be on social media and we could have a totally different panel about social media and its pluses and minuses. But, but one thing that it's doing is giving young people a platform to shape opinion. And so one example of this for us, and we, so we've, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing on TikTok and I may, <laughs> that may always be the case. Um, but, but, but thank goodness there are young people who work at Earth Justice <laughs> and, and who man Instagram and um, TikTok and other important social media channels. And what we found is that this is an area where young activated people want to go deep to understand really complex problems and they want to do it with people that they trust to tell them the truth. And so interestingly, our explainers on things like the shadow docket of the Supreme Court or organophosphates or um, arcane issues about how to operate in a public utility commission actually do incredibly well. Very serious people are using social media for a, a, a serious purpose. And we found that, um, how many people in this room know about the Willow drilling project? That's great. Um, this was a sleeper issue. No one in the world was really caring about the Western Arctic and plans by ConocoPhillips to drill it. But it broke through on social media. I'd like to think that we had um, a handle in that, but what we recognized is that incredible Gen Z influencers were making this a crucial climate test for the Biden administration. And I will tell you the difference between um, the activism that I was personally doing with this administration. We worked our hearts out to stop the Willow Project from going forward during the Trump administration. And we took it up to the Ninth Circuit. We won again and we handed over the possibility of stopping that project on what we felt was a silver platter. And I think some of the political fix was in. We we were understanding right away that, and, and I have so many good things to say about the Biden administration, and I hope I'll get the chance to do so. But some elections matter enormously. But on this issue, the administration was still taking the Trump line in in the proceedings, and the the what happened when this went viral on social media and and there are 150 million hits on the meme stop willow and and 148 million more on stop willow project the white house took notice agencies took notice and meetings had a different tenor and we haven't lost this issue yet we're going to appeal to the ninth circuit but i want everyone in this room to know is that 
the day after the Department of Interior signed the approval for this project, we had a meeting, a very high level meeting with the administration. And, this, and the question was, what can we do to make up for this? Because the administration felt backed into a corner to make an, a very unpopular decision, but they were worried about alienating this base. And so for anyone who feels dispirited that this kind of upswelling, influencing campaign did not get the result that was intended to stop this project, A, don't give up yet on Willow, but B, recognize the power that you have built. And there is not a met, there is not a meeting that I go into, whether it's with Leader Schumer, with uh, the Climate Office, Ali Zaidi, John Podesta, this is constantly on their minds. And you have shown the power that you can have in this election. So choose your next test wisely, and the old people like me will be right behind you. And, and we will use, to the best of our ability, the power that you're building. I don't know about you all, but that was a really impactful <laughs> answer. Um, I like how you tied in a lot of racial, social, just very intersectional impl implications and like the holistic view of it all. Um, I thought it was interesting about you including lived experiences, especially for like BIPOC, first gen um, students, just because even though we're like new and we're fresh and like we're unexperienced, as many would say, um, I feel like it's really important and stressing that engagement and the direct interactive engagement that we have on political campaigns, especially in our impacts and future impacts on civic engagement. And then kind of shifting into the same realm um, for Ashi. You have described in, in, whoa, environmentalism, sorry, all, um, in your previous campaigns as linked to social, racial, political, and economic justice movements. Could you expand a little bit more on the intersectionality of it all and describe what are Berkeley students' role in supporting that intersectional approach? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. That's a big question as well. <laughs> I'm going to do my best also to unpack it, just starting off by defining what intersectionality really means it's it's looking at it really does start with looking inward and considering how your political and social identities shape how you view the world how you take actions on different issues and when i say or when the uc berkeley community and the students i work get to work with say that environmentalism is intersectional, it really starts with acknowledging that the impacts of environmental issues, again, are disproportionate, that they impact certain communities, as you mentioned, people of color, Black, Latinx communities, um, disproportionately. And it's because of people who have privilege because of inner intersectionality because of the political and social identities that they hold and be that power that they have propagated on the communities that you, Abby, have mentioned. So that's what we really mean when we talk about environmentalism being intersectional. And I think it kind of answers why we say it's intersectional with, you know, your political identity, with your racial identity, with your socioeconomic status, because I mean, there is histories of redlining, where you live, who, um, what kind of 
your genetic makeup to some extent as well, how you've been impacted by where you live. All of that is very, very influenced by historical, uh, historical oppression by, by kind of just who your parents are, which is crazy and a very big thing to try to grapple with and dismantle. And again, just the first step of that is recognizing what environmental intersectionality <clears throat> means. I think as students who understand that and at UC Berkeley specifically, how we can work to recognize that, it, we're only here for four years. We are quite literally temporary residents. So making sure we take the time to uplift the voices of the people who are longstanding residents in Berkeley, in Oakland, in the broader Bay Area and help support their movements that are far going to outlast our time here is probably the best and the easiest way to help make sure that we continue bringing up the fact that environmentalism, environmentalism is intersectional and continue to support these people and these communities on the issues that matter to them. Yeah, I think that's all really important. I'd just like to take a moment. I'd like you guys to um, please utilize your question cards that are located right in front of you. If you'd like to ask any of our panelists something, please don't let me be the only one asking my own questions up here because I will take advantage of that. Um, but yeah, I really think that just understanding of where you come from and your determinants of like how you are going to grow up, I really feel like play into Berkeley's um, whole thing of challenging the status quo and making sure we take everything in a holistic kind of viewpoint. Um, and I feel like that's really essential to how we look at the actual scientific facts of the climate crisis. And then I would like to ask Daniel, um, considering your background and that you've authored and co-authored 12 books, written 300 plus peer-reviewed journal publications, testified more than 40 times to U.S. state and federal congressional briefings, and provided various governments with more than 50 technical reports, in all of your research and education, what do you think is the most influ influential fact about our current climate crisis that you think everybody in this room should know? And how can we fight for it in upcoming elections? <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm trying to think what's the three minute answer yeah. to, to that. Um, I mean, I guess one of the features that it's not just the right, it's, it's not just the political right obscuring the agenda. It's that um, progressive organizations, governments have in many cases lost sight of or don't recognize because it's hard to keep it all in your head at once. That question already had a lot of stuff in it. But the debate right now is we at the Paris Climate Conference, COP21, committed to a two-degree guardrail. We weren't going to – the plan was not to let the planet warm by more than two degrees. We have already warmed by 1.2. So not a lot of headroom left from two degrees – but in the interim, we've seen how the damages are on not only environmental grounds, but on gender and racial grounds. And I've worked on cook stoves in rural communities with women's groups as in the lead. I've worked on defeating coal-fired power plants that were going to be built in the U.S. or in Kenya or in Bangladesh with, with groups of young activists and some old people sprinkled in to kind of do whatever we do. Um, but a lot of that process, and now we have 1.5 degrees as the new target recognizing how bad the damages are. So the headroom left is really tiny, and it's very easy to either give up 
I was just at a panel with a Nobel laureate um, and someone who was well-known in this area, former Secretary of Energy, who said, well, I think we're on a path for three degrees. And three degrees for us on average means 20 degrees to the poles. It means no ice in the Arctic and the Antarctic. It means dramatic changes in food supply. You know, watch a movie like Interstellar, not for the cool space part, but for the, uh, for the droughts and the famines on Earth. The world has perhaps 50 days of food in reserve. Pretty easy for that to go away with one bad famine year. Despite all of those horrific things, despite the fact the ocean is many, degree, many tenths of a degree warmer than it should be right now, there is still clearly a path to make that one and a half degrees work. You don't hear that very often because it would require us actually getting off our collective backsides um, and not having power point all the time, but a few power plant. And so one of the things is that what it would take to make that happen. It would require the kind of things we saw as controversial it is in some areas. The Inflation Reduction Act was passed by a political miracle. There were some people chugging away for decades, but a remarkable dialogue among a few people got a bill together that was such a transformative investment in the U.S. We haven't gotten all the money out the door yet. That's a problem for the coming election. But that Europe had to send the president of France over to complain that we were stealing all the good environmental companies. And if you add up the $369 billion in the, in the Inflation Reduction Act and the quarter billion dollars in the even more politically charged Chips and Science Act, because there's a very anti-China piece of that, despite what's going on today with the G2 meeting between uh, Biden and Xi, and the Infrastructure Act, that's about a trillion dollars. We've never done that before. This is the most environmentally progressive administration we have had since Carter, and maybe more so, despite the things I disagree with strongly, like Willow, and leveraging all that money to not only get the clean jobs out in the field, but also to make it clear that any election that steers away from this remarkable brief moment we have right now is not just political suicide here or there. Someone gets elected, someone doesn't get elected. It is literally rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic if we don't find a way to continue this agenda. And this agenda is not perfect. I actually have a little different take on Willow. I actually think that it's, while it was a bad decision in my own view, the argument internally was that we've already gotten these bills I mentioned through. We need to win purple and we need to pull some votes in red states. And it's very unlikely if we, the progressive center left, are reelected that Willow will happen. And so there was a calculus that some of us may not like it seems very calculating about the future, but the calculus was if we don't find a way to pull some voters towards this environmental agenda, then other things aren't going to matter. And everyone has their different take on different bills. But I would say this package um, that is now on the table, and right now the struggle is getting a lot of that money spent in the short time, not only before the election, but early enough so that people who are not interested in the environment will recognize what California already has. There are far more jobs in clean energy than dirty. If you look around this room, the future is female. There are far more women environmentalists than men environmentalists. Just count the bodies by birth assigned gender in this room. It is what we have seen in my department. When I arrived at Berkeley 24 years ago, we sifted through some really interesting applicants and they were almost all refugees from STEM fields and they were almost all men. 
last couple years, we have been admitting 70 to 80% of our new grad students are women. And that shift reflects values, understanding that the kind of thinking around short-term interest rates and short-term returns, which is very much the worldview of men in blue suits, is a world of the past. Longer, um, longer understanding about impacts of the future, lower discount rates, a social cost on carbon, Justice 40 run by Shalonda Baker, um, someone who her own story of being the actual person that was the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court case around don't ask, don't tell when she was in the Air Force Academy, an African-American lesbian woman. Um, all those features fold into a new calculus. And I think that's why some of the decisions we see are disappointing. But if we can continue this, the trend makes that 1.5 degree possible despite Everything you hear that it's already in the rearview mirror, forget it, we're on the way to three, four, five degrees. But it requires environment not to be the second or third tier issue. It requires it to be the first tier issue because in my view, we live in a world today where this quote from William Gibson, I think, is right on the money. The future is already here. It's just inequitably divided. And finding a way to show the benefits of the clean energy transition benefit everyone, not just rich people who own Teslas and live in gated communities. That is the future that we need to empower. And so that little bit of headroom left is actually enough if we got off our collective rear ends. No, yeah, I know it was very hard to pick just one <laughs> issue within the whole climate crisis because there's so much we could talk about. But I like how you tied in the racial, social and political implications of the sustainability transition, just because they're everywhere. We can see them right on campus. We can see that there's actually like electric vehicle charging stations up by um, right across the road on Hearst Avenue. But trying to shift from fact to action, um, I would actually like to ask Sharon, are there any successful environmental justice initiatives, movements, or projects that you find inspiring in your work alongside Cirque? Hmm. That's such a beautiful question. <laughs> Um, they're so inspired by so many different initiatives and programs and projects that have happened both off campus, just locally, like um, even just like today, there's tons of protests that have been existing like um, just around the last few weeks. And right now in San Francisco, outside of APEC, I'm like inspired by the people who are, you know, on the streets right now um, with so much, you know, heavy, big, a lot of different political leaders here um, in such a centralized area. But on campus, I'm really inspired by the student organization, um, the Students of Color Environmental Collective. Um, they've just been such a leading organization in really uh, integrating just environmental justice education, but really making, you know, really uplifting um, the different issues related to diversity within the environmental sector and within the campus. A few years ago, I think in 2017, the students led a hashtag environmentalism so white campaign um, outside um, just that was targeting the call of natural resources and the demand of where are the professors of color. Um, that campaign actually led to CERT creating our first environmental justice associate, um, wanting to figure out how can we uh, implement more EJ initiatives in our own work? What are the things that our students um, wanting to see? How can we um, help support 
the Students of Color Environmental Collective um, for the things that they're institutionalizing and what is our role as a campus department and where how can we support um, the students of Color Environmental Collective um, went on to be able to actually share their perspectives at the University of California Office of the Present Sustainability Steering Committee where um, they shared their feedback, their experiences of being students of color at UC Berkeley, their demands for more diversity within the environmental sector, their demands for environmental justice being a central component of their education, of their student engagement, of their activism and experience. And that actually helped lead um, the creation of a working group called um, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion and Sustainability, which I sit on that I've been sitting on for the last few years, where we've been developing different environmental DEI um, um, policies and things that we can actually try to implement a little bit more at the UC system-wide level. And that really stemmed and came from the Students of Color Environmental Collective from our campus. And so I love getting to work with them. They inspire me every day. I'm just, again, all of the students on campus, like I feel so privileged that I get to interact in the role that I do and really get to support the different programs and projects that people are working on. No, that's really good. I might be a little biased just because I am skek. Um I'm kind of sad that I didn't um, know about that campaign, but I think it's really, I think important for me, well, personally, to have spaces for and by people of color, just because being a student of color in an environmentalist career, although like a lot of people don't know, it's kind of hard just because our voices get a little shouted down on. Um, but yeah, I will now be moving on to your guys' questions that you guys have asked. And then we'll begin with Abby. Um, how do you find hope in the movement and build resiliency in your work? Oh, thank you, whoever asked that. Um, well, well, one is just to really agree as, as much as I possibly could with Dan. There still is a plausible path. We have the ability to rein in runaway climate change and if we did it, how we would advance social justice, how we could protect our failing ecosystems. I mean, it's a, it is an incredible set of possibilities that we have. And we can't do it without leadership from the U.S. We can't bring the U.S. to where it needs to be without caring for our democracy. And so it gives me a lot of hope to think about this kind of activism heading into the most consequential election of all of our lifetimes. And I kind of wish I could have a break from that feeling because the last one was such a crucible. But this one is even more of a crucible because of that headroom, because of the difference. And if, if you're speaking to anyone who is feeling disillusioned with politics as usual. I want to say this is not politics as usual. I've been doing this work for almost 30 years. I've been at Earth Justice for 23. And the kinds of um, the kind of momentum that we are seeing in this administration, notwithstanding all of the challenges, this is, a, it, this is an incredibly cross pressured moment, right? It is one that is defined by an economy with soaring inflation that is now coming back under control. The challengers are so high, but the ambition has remained high. And I hope that you are seeing, I'm, I touted a, a 
a problematic piece, but I will tell you when the IRA passed the Senate, and I knew, I knew what the compromises were and we're dealing with them every day in the Gulf South and Appalachia, but I cried my eyes out driving down Marin and it felt very dangerous in fact, because I thought now we have a chance. And people in this room probably had a part of that, you know, surfacing this level of investment. I didn't know if it would ever be possible in my lifetime, a view of jobs and justice and social change rather than kind of rearranging the deck chairs. It's so exciting that that happened. And the, the Green New Deal, whatever you think about it, that popularized in so many people's imagination, what investment, what government at the scale of the first New Deal could do in the face of this kind of crisis. And it's young people who made that idea part of the political discourse in this country. So what gives me hope? You know, a lot of people on these kinds of panels say young people, and it's starting to feel trite. But I'm here tonight because young people and the consciousness that you bring, the values that you bring, the sense of urgency that you bring, the sense of audacity that you bring, the sense of necessity that you will have to keep bringing is part of it. And I don't say that with a sort of uh, chill feeling of like, great, I'm glad that you guys are better than my generation. You'll solve it. Absolutely not. We are here. We are here. This is, you know, every movement has a, a people say it one di in different ways, but the voices that matter most are the elders who've, who've seen it before and the youth who are seeing it with fresh energy and understanding. And people of my generation's job is to hold it down, listen to you and hold it down. And I want you to know that there are many more people like me and Dan who see the threat, who've worked our lives to understand what the possibility is. And with your help, we can do it. And we have to have the joy along the way. It's not going to get solved in my lifetime. It may not be all solved in yours. So we've got to love this place that we're trying to protect. That's what's going to give us the energy to get up every day and keep having this fight that we will win because we have to. I know the question is really loaded. I know that a lot of people think that like environmentalism, when you tell people like, like, I don't know about you, Ashi, or anybody else. When I tell people I'm an environmental studies major, they just ask me how I'm not depressed all the time learning about all these horrific facts and everything. But yeah, looking looking for, towards the future, I feel like it's a really big part of it all. Um, I have a question specifically for Professor Common. How can we close the education gap and more specifically harmonizing social science and more STEM technical domains amongst voters? And if anyone else would like to add after that. Well, I mean, you know, you're asking the wrong person in some <laughs> sense because I'm a physicist, right? So I started in this area, what can the, the physics, what can material science, what can these topics bring to bear? And that was quite appropriate back when I did it, when clean energy in every category was more expensive than fossil energy. And we crossed a point, we've crossed several interesting thresholds. There was a point several years ago when the world produced more silicon for solar cells than for computer chips. Then we passed a point where solar power, which was the most expensive form of energy when I was in graduate school, is now the cheapest. And if we looked at the world from 30 years ago, where we are today, we would have said, oh, well, once solar is cheaper than fossil, of course, we're all going to, it's all you know, wonderful, now it's all going to be clean energy. 
and now we're here and we realize that's not the case. While we're building a lot of renewable energy, the total annual investment in renewable energy around the planet, the hardware investment, the training, all of that totals about a half a trillion dollars. Just the subsidies on the table, not the actual revenues and the hardware for fossil fuels, is between one and seven trillion. And that's just the subsidy on the table for fossil, let alone the revenues and everything else. So the goalposts have changed in a way that the technical only approach that was kind of a reasonable way in when I started, you know, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, <laughs> is not relevant today. And the piece that all of us are learning, whether we come from physics or rhetoric or whatever else, is how to now lead on not only social agenda, but the financial agenda. And right now, more weight is there. And so building a social justice movement is much more about understanding how institutions and individuals are empowered or marginalized or disempowered. Um, and how is it that we flip over not only the way we think about politics and the way we, we, we engage as voters, but also the fact that basically every financial institution we've set up is aligned with a fossil fuel economy where low upfront cost and cost and damage down the road is discounted to zero. We have to flip that to a world where we actually value the future, and we don't. We reward companies for polluting because in almost all parts of the world, the cost is zero or very low. In some places, there's a negative cost to pollute. In Brazil, under the former president, not thankfully under President Lula, you were given an incentive the more rainforest you, you cleared. That was a financial reward. We do the same thing. And right now, the US and China are dividing up the Congo. Um, not always for cobalt and other materials, but for gold, for water, for wood, all kinds of things. So we are devaluing that future every day we don't go out and do something about it. So I think that one of the key aspects of the story is if you have a social problem, don't look for a technical tool to solve it. Because what a technical tool will do will make a few people or a few companies rich. It's actually the social movement that has to lead and utilize the tools, whether it's social media or renewable energy or whatever else. Don't go look and say, oh, we'll take this hard problem and solve it with a technical piece. And that means some very concrete things. We may or may not need carbon capture. We may or may not need to suck carbon out of the air. But do not look to that technology to solve a problem that's inherently about greed and then say, well, we'll find some magic technical way out. Right. In my view, we live in a society where we have capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich. And that makes no sense if you want to value the planet. So that is inherently a story about humanity, social institutions, the social sciences, the humanities, where the technical tool is a good tool, but it is not the lead. But Many places we think about the technical tools, the lead, because where the money is, is in the schools of engineering and the biggest engineering companies. That is a way to guarantee the future will be brutish, ugly, and short. Like I mentioned before, a lot of what I've learned about environmentalism or environmental justice has not come from my classes. And this is an experience that I know many other students have felt we had an event environmental justice in action yesterday where we actually talked about this how does climate action or environmentalism play a role like in your academic careers versus outside of it and a lot of what was brought to the table was 
we're not there yet in our classes. And a lot of what we learn comes from spending time in those communities or talking to people who have spent those time in, spent their time in those communities that have been facing those impacts. So just like, I feel like this connect, this question is a little bit connected to what you answered in that if we're not valuing the voices in a current financial or in a system where money is kind of placed at a higher priority than people's stories, if we're not using money to value people's stories in this current system, then people are not going to view, you know, issues like this in a social context there. If you're not valuing their opinions financially, they don't think they can make careers out of this. And I've received a lot of this coming from like an interdisciplinary major where I get to work with a lot of people who do get to do the work in their communities and they're severely underpaid compared to people who are pursuing careers in, you know, engineering disciplines. And it's not to say that, you know, engineers don't deserve the money they do. They are creating and using tools that they are. But if, again, if we're not valuing those stories, and I mean, it has to start in the educational space. If it has to start somewhere, it should start in education, where if we're not teaching environmental justice or how to organize or things like that as something that you can make a career out of and live a life in this current system, like, yes, I have... I believe that the system needs to change in so many different ways, but just thinking like short term about me, about like my generation and how we're going to be going into the workforce. If we don't think we can make a career out of it or like feed our families, then we're not going to be able to, you know, integrate the social aspect into, into whatever, into where it's needed basically. So yeah, I think just educationally, it has to start by being like, this is valuable education and you can pursue a path related to that. I just wanted to add, I wish that there were a major in every university and community college that was about social change and how movements work. I mean, what you just said, what Dan just said is so important. We cannot overstate how much in this society we rely on markets and technology as as the solution to deep social problems. And that will never work. We have to remember how to organize to drive social change. And it's not intuitive. You have to really understand the context that you're in. And so um, how history can be a guide. There has to be a power analysis. I think most of us are illiterate in how to really do a power analysis and then assess what is a strategy to organize majorities. This is a science, it's an art, and, and I think we sort of chalk it up to, I hope people will show up in the streets and the, that the world will change. That's not how it works. And so having marrying up, all of this expertise exists at Berkeley in different departments, but having an interdisciplinary way of marrying it up and understanding how to drive social change. I, I think that's like the major that we're all gonna need for the future. Our last question for the speaker series. Um, just, I know this has been a lot of heavy conversations <laughs> that we're having, but in short, how can students get involved in environmental activism if they haven't already before? 
what would be like your main takeaway into delving into this very big and intersectional realm given like everything that we've talked about in this series so far um one go to cirque.berkeley.edu follow cirque berkeley on instagram that's why we exist we were created by transfer students 10 years ago because they wanted to know how do i get involved in the environmental community at cal it was hard to find in the, uh, back then, and they wanted a centralized space to learn what are the 40 plus organizations, what are the different campaigns, what are the different professional development opportunities I can do. And so that was the birth of what we do. And that is our job is to connect you all to different projects, initiatives, student organizations, anything that's happening on campus community so that you all have an avenue to get involved. Outside of Cirque, what I would share is the environmental sector is so big, so broad, climate change is mighty. Find what your calling is. What do you, what is that sector? What is your niche within this big, broad, you know, sustainability sector? Like, what is it that you feel most passionate about? What are your strengths and skills? We need everybody. Um, we need lawyers, we need educators, we need researchers, we need um, people who are on the ground, we need folks who can, you know, make media. There's a place for everyone in this work. So finding what your strength is and seeing how you can integrate, you know, your values of climate justice, your passion for the environment, and um, that way of like being able to gauge more in your, your, your style of activism good answer yeah <laughs> we love cert yeah i mean i can give just like a very very brief answer um first off my email is always open if you're if you're looking to get involved just i i think it stands for the environmental community at Cal, I've talked to many people who consider themselves environmentalists and students at the same time and never have they been like, oh, I don't have time to talk to you or I don't know kind of where to direct you. So I'm going to take a little bit of a different perspective on this and just be like, just say that don't be afraid to show up to something just because you don't know anyone in the room. Um, I know there's a lot of discomfort with that and it's just because of like organizations like CERC and different environmental like orgs, there is a niche place for you. And the people there are very, very welcoming. So to just take take that chance and things will fall into place. Yeah, I will put myself on the spot. I did literally email Ashi not even like a few days ago, <laughs> introducing myself before this panel. Um, I know it's even though we're all different majors, I feel like it's very hard to get into a niche that's been very vocalized in the public sphere and it's very hard to just like get right into it but I feel like if you pick a topic that interests you and you just find the intersections within that I feel like it it'll leave you on a deep dive that'll go on forever but it's all really interesting and essential to our society but um Abby Dan do you guys have anything uh just as someone who's had the privilege of working in the public interest I want to say dream of a public interest job you there are more and more good paying ones that you can make a life with. When I was starting out, I just didn't think there would be a place for me. And a great professor said, if you want it, there will always be a place for you. And there are more and more places for everyone who wants to do this work. The need is so enormous. So don't rule that out. Um, so many people negotiate against themselves early on. Y you can do good for a living and, and, and you can make a decent living doing it. 
I mean, I guess uh, it's, it's sort of what we've said in different ways, and that is that these are all critical fights and there's so many different doors. California makes a lot of mistakes. We tend to take two steps forward and then one step back. Um, but California is also a place where there is a pretty clear agenda, and part of the story is that this is a much broader battle. And so finding out-of-state, out-of-country, out-of-region partnerships, student uh, fellow student groups to work with, that those partnerships are really critical because we don't make it if California decarbonizes and New York decarbonizes, but the U.S. South doesn't decarbonize or Southeast Asia doesn't decarbonize. It has to be a much faster global process. And as many problems as we still have to fight here, the bigger that tent, the better. And so I think finding ways to build those collaborations. Semesters abroad, going to work for the Peace Corps, spending uh, time with a, with a grassroots organization in Nicaragua. We have one of the world's best environmental justice organizations in the world right here on San Pablo Avenue in GRID. And they work uh, many places. And so there are so many resources right here. The more of these organizations you meet up with on campus, the more chance you're likely to find one that really resonates with your interests. Can I say one more thing, which is politics gets a bad rap. It is so fun. <laughs> it is so fun. And heading into 2024, oh my goodness, whatever you could do to volunteer with a campaign, you'll never forget it. You'll you'll meet the friends of your life. And I wish I had done that more. If I could go back in time and switch places, that's what I'd be thinking about too. So just don't be discouraged by politics. Remember, AOC was a waitress when she decided to run for Congress. Do not wait. Yes, that's just a little hint for the upcoming 2024 election. Please get involved. Please be civically engaged. Um, but I'd like to thank you all. These are very insightful answers, very eye-opening. And I don't know about you all, but I feel like these panelists deserve a very big round of applause. Um, but yeah, again, thank you for taking the time out of your day, coming to talk to our students and other like-minded people. Um, and I'd like to welcome Ava back to close out our program. Yes, thank you so much to our speakers and to our moderator for your amazing and thought-provoking discussion today. And thank you to the audience members. I know we went a little bit over time, so thank you all for being engaged and being here today. And I want to again thank the Creating Citizens and Commonwealth Club World Affairs. And I just hope that everyone had an enjoyable time and was able to learn more about environmental activism and civic engagement through this program. I know I definitely learned a lot of things that I had not known before coming here today. Um, We'd also love to welcome you to future programs. Our Spring Creating Citizens series program will take place in April, so make sure to keep an eye out for that. And the Commonwealth Club World Affairs also has lots of other opportunities for students and educators, including free tickets to programs and discounted memberships. Um, and if you'd like to find out more, you can visit commonwealthclub.org education and follow in Creating Citizens on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Recording of, recordings of today's programs will be posted on the club's website. And I would also like to mention that on your way out, you can register to vote or take a QR code to register to vote if you haven't done so already. Um, you can also follow ASUC Vote Co. if you would like to learn more about how to be more civically engaged and how to register to vote. Um, and yeah, that concludes this program. Thank you so much to everyone for your participation and all of your audience members for coming out. I hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your night. Um, yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. 
go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.